today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. More pushback, more fallout about Buck a Beer. Now, we talked about this yesterday when the uh, Doug Ford government made their announcement of Buck a Beer and finally rolled out what they say is going to be their program on this. And, well, it's uh, received an awful lot of negative re- reaction, especially from the people in the industry. Uh, and I want you to ex- understand exactly what's going on here, because basically the government has thrown this all back at the brewers and said, look, at, you know, you guys have to drop the price. And, and if it affects your profit margin, too bad, so sad, because uh, they've got to continue to draw all the taxes. It's a very complicated thing and very one-sided issue. And, and a number of the the microbreweries and uh, the very successful breweries in this province are speaking out against them. One of the first uh, to issue some concerns about this, of course, were the folks at uh, Napanee Beer Company. Uh, Jordan Saunders is the founder and head brewer at the Napanee Beer Company, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Jordan, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Let's talk a little bit about the implications, and I want to maybe get into some detail, Jordan, about the the, the the issues facing you, the costs that you, that you are faced with on a daily basis as you produce this stuff. Because I don't think the government was very clear on that, and there's probably a reason for that at the time. But it, it, your assessment about what the government announced yesterday and the impact it could have on your company. Well, I think, to put it simply, the impact of the Bucket Beer program is, is a bad thing for Ontario-owned breweries. And that's for a couple reasons. Uh, the first, I would say, is simply that it politicizes craft beer, which up to this point has been this really great egalitarian thing. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter who you vote for or where you lean. You can enjoy your favorite stout or IPA or lager, but today you can't open a beer in this province without thinking about politics, and I don't like that as a brewer. Second of all, the Bucket Beer Challenge, as the government has said, encourages small Ontario-owned businesses to make less money on the product we all work so hard to make, to support their campaign promise. And finally, the biggest concern that we have as a brewery is that the Bucket Beer program does the, achieves its goals very disingenuously by, with lack of a better word, bribing big businesses to participate in Bucket Beer by giving them thousands and thousands of dollars in free advertising and shelf space that we as a small brewery would pay a lot of money for. Well, let's let's talk about some of the challenges, Jordan, that, that brewers like yours and, and so many others. We've got some great ones here in the Hamilton area as well that uh, have done pretty well. But, I mean, it's it's challenging. I mean, I've talked to some of the guys at Bench Brewery and, and, and Nickelbrook and some of the other local uh, craft brewers around here. And they said, like, you know, the biggest problem here is an awful lot of people in the public don't understand how much it costs to produce something like this. That's absolutely true. There, we've seen a, a number of comments on social media in the last day. Uh, indicating that Ontario breweries are getting rich on high beer prices or insinuating that we're taking all this money from the Ontario public and just hiding it away in our offshore accounts. It couldn't be farther from the truth. Beer is a business that we're all in because we love it. It's not because we're making a bunch of money. Beer is a very, very narrow margin product that we make and we sell because we love it. And, and uh, but... <laughs> You know, for instance, when we talk about some of the products and 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 the work that goes into this, and 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 as one of the the brewers was telling me yesterday, like you want quality beer, don't you? I mean, that's that's what you know the reason you you maybe lean towards the craft as opposed to some of those international brands. Uh, it, it you know you've got to pay for quality products. That's all there is to it. I mean, you know, I'd love to pay a thousand dollars for my brand new car later on this year too, but I know I'm not going to do that. If I walk into the Chevy dealership and said I want that uh, 2018 model there, I'll give you a thousand bucks for it. They're going to laugh me out of the lot. And that's absolutely true. Uh, one of the funniest things that's come up is that 
the cost, the question has been asked a lot about how much it costs to make beer. And the statement I've made a number of times in the last day or two is that I couldn't make a beer that I would be comfortable selling to you for a dollar. The cost of making good beer just is higher than that. It is not compatible with the very outdated concept of bucket beer. Well, I, I'm wondering if people are confusing what you do with, with some of the, the, these brewers where you can brew your own sort of stuff and think, oh, well, that's easy. Why can't, you know, those guys, can't, they're not spending very much money. But I, I guess the word that we have to introduce into this conversation here, Jordan, is quality. Absolutely. Quality is something that we in the, in the craft brewer industry in Ontario are so proud of. You know, we talk a lot about the quality of the beer we make. You're not going to get quality beer at a bucket unit, and that's a... I say that with confidence. I've been in the industry long enough, and I've been, I've been in business long enough to know that you can either have something cheap or you can have it good. But you're not going to get both. Bucket beer is a perfect example of that. Well, if you were forced to, and I, and I don't want to mislead anybody here, because the legislation that uh, that Ford talked about yesterday is not forcing anybody to do this. They're they're encouraging you to do it. But if, if you were forced to charge only a buck for the beer, how would that impact your operation? I mean, obviously, you'd have to change the quality of the product, wouldn't you? Absolutely. I, honestly, we'd be out of business if we were forced to do it. And that's it's nice to know that we're not being <laughs> uh, enforced to participate in bucket beer. But the reality of it is our flagship beer, which is our blacklist black German lager that we sell all over, all over Ontario, if I were to sell that for a dollar today, I'd lose more than a dollar per can right out there. So that means I wouldn't be paying my employees. I wouldn't be paying my rent. I wouldn't be supporting my family and my community all for the sake of supporting a campaign promise. And I think people understand that. I mean, I think that's why we've seen such a, uh, a growth period here with craft breweries, because people are looking for that quality. And, and I'm, I understand that, you know, some people are simply going to say, look, at, you know, we're consumers, we want to get the best possible price. But I think at some point you have to understand that you've got to pay for, for a product like that. I mean, if you want something that's going to be just a little bit better, you're probably going to pay a little more for it. Absolutely, that's right. And, and they, they don't seem to get that. So when the announcement was made yesterday, now there was some speculation, as you know, Jordan, last week when uh, Premier Ford was talking about this, and he, he was talking about some incentivizing uh, that was going to go on, uh, which led to speculation that there could be some financial incentives on in this. Uh, and, and instead he said, no, you're going to get some advertising within the LCBO, uh, which I, I don't know your thoughts on that, whether you think that's actually going to be a fair trade and for, for what you would have to do to try to comply with what he's suggesting. It's certainly not fair. And in fact, this is the, this is the central uh, concern that we as a brewery have. So the, the government has been clear and said that it's not a financial, uh, it's not a, a financial impact and that you know, they're not paying brewers. But let's be realistic. The only brewery in Ontario who's already signed up to say this said on the radio shortly ago that they're looking forward to getting free premium shelf space at LCBO stores that would cost them between three and $700 a month per store. Now, if we were to be given that same benefit as an Ontario-owned brewery, that would be the benefit of around sixty dollars to $70,000 a month for our business. But to do that, we'd have to lose an equivalent amount of money on the beer we sell. And I think it's unfair to say to Ontario breweries, we're going to be giving this thousands and thousands of dollars of free advertising to breweries who can afford to drop their pants on the price, which in the real world is just going to be multinational corporations that aren't even owned by Ontario uh, citizens. Well, and I think a lot of people need to understand that. I don't know how, if they want to follow the, the business uh, you know, track that goes along here, but I mean, you know, a lot of the beers that they might buy at the beer store 
uh, without getting into all kinds of brand names, are foreign owned. I mean, that's what it comes down to. I mean, if you're buying uh, what you think is is Molson's, well, or any of these or Coors or anything else. Uh, these are all offshore uh, entities right now. I mean, what I'm looking at doing here is supporting local economies, uh, whether it's here in Hamilton, whether it's in, in Collingwood, whether it's uh, you name it, any place. Uh, you can find that quality if you look for it. But there are challenges even at that point, aren't there, Jordan? Because, I mean, you've got to be able to market it. And if you want the LCBO to carry your product, you've got to shell out some cash for that. Well, there's, that's true. And uh, exactly to that point, you know, if if we wanted to put our product on a premium position on the shelf in a store, we're going to be paying hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars just for a few weeks of that display. So instead, we, like many of the craft breweries in Ontario, have fought long and hard to, to show LCBO stores across Ontario that our beer is great, that customers love it, that if they put it on the shelf, that people are going to buy it. And we've shown that day in and day out. Now what we're talking about is that same shelf space that we fought long and hard for on the backs of our hardworking teams is going to be given to breweries who are getting it just for, as I said, dropping their pants on the price of their product. And, and it's fine for an international company to do that because they can absorb the loss, obviously, much more than a, a smaller business such as yours could. Absolutely. But, but, but those are the challenges, are they not? I mean, since, since these, the craft breweries have started to pop up, and, and I've talked to a number of the, the great entrepreneurs uh, such as yourself, Jordan, that have decided to get into this business, uh, you know, the challenge is obviously getting the product to market. I mean, you've got two entities, really, that you can do right now. One is, is the LCBO, and we've talked about some of the challenges, the financial challenges, uh, to try to get shelf space there. Uh, the other is the beer store, and and good luck if you're at a craft brewery right now trying to get your product into a beer store. I mean, th- th- that's almost a monopoly here right now, and you've got to pay through the nose to be able to get in there. That's true, and, and I'll even I'll even add to that. It's not almost a monopoly. It is a monopoly. You know, the, these big foreign-owned brewers, uh, Molson Coors, Anheuser-Busch, Sapporo, these are all foreign-owned entities that have an absolute monopoly on the sale of beer in Ontario because they're the owners of the beer store. So whereas we as a local brewery cannot open up a shop in downtown Napanee to sell our beer in a, in a tourist area because it's illegal, these multinational breweries have the legal monopoly to put up beer stores that they own all across Ontario and make their money that way. And if we want to be on their shelves, you better believe that we've got to write a check for that. Part of the problem here is, 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 again, a little bit of information can can be very misleading, I guess. And, and, and this whole basis for the announcement that the government made yesterday, Jordan, was, was talking about the bottom line price for beer. And, and they, it, it was a buck twenty-five. We all know that, that the McGinney government jacked it up to a buck twenty-five a few years ago in 2008. Uh, and, and Ford has announced that the legislation is going to drop it down to a buck. But it's, it's really not a statistic that's very germane to this. I mean, that's that's the least you can possibly charge for beer. The problem here is that if you want more quality, that price is going to go up. And and, and I think the government was, was essentially saying to people, oh, no, 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 it doesn't matter what kind of quality beer you want, it's all going to be the same price. And that's never been the case. That's true, and it's a strong implication that kind of commoditizes beer. You know, when we talk about bucket beer, the implication is that beer is beer, that you go to the store and you buy beer. You don't go to the store and buy, you know, Napanee beer because you love our beer or Muskoka beer or, you know, Bose because you love the product they make. It kind of just insinuates that all beer is just this kind of faceless, vague product. And that really flies in the face of the progress the Ontario craft beer market has made in the last 10 years. 
Well, and we've seen that with some of the other products. Obviously, with yours, with Napanee, with Creamore Springs, and so many other great breweries that have come along, and they have developed their own marketing, and they have developed their their loyal uh, customers as a result of this, and it's because it is different. It's not like the other stuff that you could buy in other retail outlets. That's absolutely it. And, you know, one way to think about this is, we just said the the previous minimum price for alcohol was about a buck twenty-five a bottle, and there wasn't a brewery in this entire province who was selling for the minimum price, because selling for the minimum price in any business doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So now we drop the minimum price to a dollar, and everybody knows, including the government, that there isn't a brewery that would participate in that willingly. You know, you, you, we put out this announcement to the craft beer market and say, "Hey guys, do you want to make less money on the beer you make?" And no, no one is going to say, "Yeah, for sure, I make too much money." So instead, we have to bribe breweries to participate in this by giving away this free advertising and giving away this shelf space that is very valuable and otherwise you would pay a lot of money for. But, but there's something philosophically incorrect with the announcement that they essentially said. And, and the finance minister, Vic Fidelli, was there with the premier yesterday when they made this announcement and basically said, we're keeping our pile of money. We're not going to charge any less tax because we want that revenue for us. Uh, we're not going to give you a break on the money you have to pay to the LCBO, uh, but we want you to lower the price, but you're going to have to ha- take a hit on your, on your bottom line to do that. I mean, where's the fairness there? Well, and that's, that's a great point. There isn't any fairness to that. And that's why we need this buck of beer bribe, because otherwise the government, w- there would be no buck of beer, and the premier wouldn't be able to stand there in front of the camera and say, promise made, promise kept, and walk away like there's no more discussion to be had. There are some people that might be in a position, though, some businesses, though, Jordan, that are, as you mentioned, some of the multinationals that can do this. Uh, is, is this going to be a concern for the craft breweries? Is, is it going to create a, an unfair playing field now? I honestly don't think it will have a, a big long-term impact on us as craft brewers long-term. I think the reality is anyone who wants to sell their beer for less money should be allowed to do that. We have no concerns with that. The only chance that this has it being unfair is, as I said, taking away this shelf space at the LCBO store, our only real outlet to sell our product in Ontario and giving it to multinational corporations because they're playing ball. Well, you've been uh, loud and vocal about this, as others have joined in, and, and, and I'm glad to see that, uh, that that message is getting out there. And I think hopefully consumers here in Ontario are going to get a better understanding of, of the circumstance that's going out there. Uh, Jordan, continue. Uh, good luck with, uh, with what you guys are doing with the Napanee Beer Company. Uh, and here's hoping that you continue to th- not just survive, but thrive, uh, notwithstanding what the government's trying to get going through here. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you for having me. Good talking with you. That's uh, Jordan Saunders, the founder and head brewer at the Napanee Beer Company. Uh, you heard from uh, Nickelbrook yesterday, a local brewery. We've talked with some of the other uh, craft brewers around the province over the last 24 hours or so, and almost unanimously they're saying, look, we just can't do this. This is actually going to hurt and curtail our small businesses, not help them at all. And that's probably a consideration the government should have thought of before they made the announcement. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Headline caught my eye this morning when I uh, came into the radio station. Uh, Spectator kicked out of an open courtroom. Uh, A reporter from the Hamilton Spectator, who we're going to talk to in just a second here, was kicked out of an open courtroom. Now, the story has been gaining traction. Uh, I read it and I was was shocked and I said, I got to talk to Susan about this. But uh, then I saw this go crazy on Twitter, uh, the reaction to the story and uh, uh, an awful lot of people's reaction. uh, I'd say about 99% supportive of Susan uh, in this circumstance. Susan Claremont, of course, is the award-winning columnist with the Hamilton Spectator. She joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us uh, the background on exactly what happened. Susan, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you with us again today. 
Hey, Bill. Good morning. This is maybe to set the scene for this. Let's talk a little bit about why you were there in the first place. This is a, a trial that you have been following for some time, right? It, it's sort of a um, a sidebar to a trial. Yeah, I'm yeah. Following. So uh, for almost a year now, I've been covering a very bizarre, complicated domestic violence case in criminal court in which um, a woman, the alleged victim, says that she was tortured and abused by her husband and his family. And the family says that um, this woman was severely mentally ill and all of the injuries that she suffered, and and there were injuries, um, she caused to herself. And that she is now blaming them for this in an effort to uh, regain custody of her child. So that's the criminal court case that I've been following since last September. And there is also a family court case going on involving all of the same players. And uh, that leads us to the family courtroom yesterday from which I got turfed. And, and let's talk about those circumstances. Uh, so you, you show up at this family court hearing yesterday, and, and as you made it uh, very clear in the article, uh, there's no publication ban on this, right? There is not. We, we all no. know about that. I mean, we've talked about some of the trials that you've covered in the past where judges have said, look, at you, there's a publication ban on evidence, et cetera, Latin. And, and we understand that, you know, that's that's the ruling of the court, and we get that. And, and you've complied with that, as others, of course, that have carried these. But that was not in play here, was it? It, it wasn't. There is no publication ban on uh, the family court trial, nor is there on the criminal court trial. No publication bans, period. So... What's explain to us about the sealed uh, information that was in, involved in this? Because that seemed to be one of the the, the contentious points that uh, that that I, I well I'm gonna I'm not even gonna try to understand exactly where the judge was going when they, when they, she made the ruling that she did. But but talk to us about this because you'd made a request for that information, had you not? Right. So way back in uh, um, last year when I first started covering this case, I. Um, I made sure that all of the people involved with the case knew that I was writing a story, and it was a big, long story that was published, I think, in December in The Spectator, and that was the first one I wrote on the case. And as a courtesy, I let all the the lawyers know that this this, um, story was coming. And right around that same time, the judge at the family court case um, placed a sealing order on the family court matter. At that point, I hadn't even gone to family court. I hadn't looked into the family court part of this or anything. So um, the timing is is interesting. Um, maybe just if I could just stop you there and maybe explain to our listeners the difference between a, a publication ban and yeah. a sealed uh, order. So a sealing order means that any of the documents related to the family court case are sealed and not accessible to the public the way they usually are. Um, so what makes this sealing order very unusual, though, is that the sealing order itself is part of the sealing order. So what that means is the actual order that explains what I can and can't have access to and why and who ordered it is not accessible to me. That's part of the sealing order. And that's not the way things are supposed to work. Um, the sealing order itself is supposed to be public information. And the other thing is, Bill, that 
when um, in, in Superior Court, which is what family court is, in Superior Court, when um, when a sealing order is to be made or a publication ban is to be made or any kind of an order that would restrict public access to um, to a proceeding is going to be made or going to be requested even, a notice has to be made publicly so that um, members of the public, members of the media um, can uh, represent themselves there and argue against it if if they wish. And you've been and involved in those in the past. We have many times, and, and that's the law. That's a Supreme Court of Canada decision that makes that mandatory. Nothing like that happened in this case. Um, a sealing order was made. The sealing order itself was made secret, and nobody was ever told about it. I only learned about it after the fact, when I made a request for some documents. Uh, that's a bizarre circumstance, really. I mean, cause as I say, this is not the first time that you had sought this information out, and, and essentially you were told that, well, it's it's involved in a sealing order. You weren't told that there was a hearing about this. I guess there wasn't one. I don't know. There wasn't one. Uh, no, right. there, there was and, and then when you asked for the explanation for it, they said, well, that's sealed too. <laughs> right. It's, so, it's, it's really yeah. a bizarre circumstance. It is bizarre, and so one of the things that I that the court refused to tell me because they claimed it was part of the sealed information was something as simple as when is the next court date for the family court matter. Nobody would tell me that. I had been told that 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 was sealed, so I had no way of knowing you know where to show up in court to even speak to a judge to request. Um, you know, that the sealing order be reconsidered or, or try to make any headway with this. So as it turns out, last week I was sitting in the criminal court uh, part of this case when a discussion began in open court between Justice Andrew Goodman, who's the criminal court judge, and various lawyers about the fact that one of the accused was needed in uh, family court at the same time that he was supposed to be in criminal court. So he was basically double booked. And they were trying to figure out the scheduling around that. But what I learned was, oh, there's a, the family court matter is happening at 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning. Well, finally, I know where it is and when it is. So I'm going to go and see what happens. Now, we uh, you pointed this out in the piece, but I just want to remind our listeners about this, too. That uh, th- this is an open session. I mean, you know, you, you, I can go to the courtroom this afternoon if I want and sit down and at whatever trial is is going on. Family, uh, it's open to the public unless there's some legitimate reason. And uh, do the justices have to give a reason for that if if they are going to put restrictions on it? Well, uh, because the well, one I've usually heard is, well, it might prejudice somebody uh, or the jury or somebody else in situations like that. But there doesn't seem to be any indication that that was at play here. Right. So. Um you're right. I mean, in 99% of the cases, court is open to the public. Anybody, anybody can go and sit in on, on a trial and watch justice happen. And, and the justice system itself, there have been many Supreme Court rulings about um, the, you know, the public's right to be in a courtroom and to witness um, justice taking place. So, only in very, very rare and specific circumstances can a courtroom be closed, uh, even when there's a publication ban in place. And this, as you said, this happens frequently with trials, particularly um, 
uh, the kinds of trials that I cover, Bill. And even if there's a publication in ba- ban in place, it doesn't mean that I can't be in the courtroom. It just And it doesn't even mean I can't take notes. I sit there. I take notes. I just can't publish anything um, that's covered by a publication ban. So um, there can also be orders excluding witnesses, and that is the case in this particular family court matter. But I'm not a witness. I, I'm, I have nothing to do with the actual trial. I'm just a member of the public sitting in and observing. So as far as I was concerned, and as far as I can still see, there is no reason for me uh, not to be in that, that courtroom. Okay, so the justice in this particular case addressed you. You're sitting there as, as, a, as a reporter in this courtroom, uh, and she singled you out, essentially. Talk, talk to us about that, what happened there. Yeah, I was absolutely the only person in the courtroom, in the, in the body of the court. Well, well that there narrows it down. nobody else there. Um, so it, there was quite a kerfuffle when I walked into the courtroom. Court hadn't started yet. I walked in, I sat down. And that was it. I didn't have a notebook out. I was just I was just sitting there. And um, a lawyer who I think realized who I was uh, came and, and spoke to me, wanted to know who I was. Um, I could hear all the court staff talking about me. That's Susan Claremont from the Hamilton Spectator. Uh, you know, it wasn't like I was trying to hide who I was. I'm in court all the time. Um, and then when the judge came in, her very first order of business was to address me. And she started with saying, Susan Claremont, I know who you are. Uh, we've never met before, but I know who you are. And, and I'm still just kind of sitting there in the courtroom. I don't know what, where this is going. And, uh, and then um, Justice Mary Jo McLaren um, asked me to leave her courtroom. And it, uh, you know, I stood um, respectfully to address the judge and said, um, why would you like me to re- leave the courtroom? Can you explain this to me, please? And I really never did get any kind of a of an explanation, although I asked numerous times. I asked her, um, I asked her under what authority was she asking me to leave? It, it's not, uh, you know, Bill... Over the years, there have been occasions where judges have have asked me and other media to leave the courtroom, and we go through the same procedure every time. We stand and we say, you know, Your Honor, I'd like to stay in the courtroom. Can you please tell me why you're asking me to leave? And and I've been doing this 25 years, and in every other case where this has happened, the judge has been able to explain to me why they're asking me to leave. I may not always agree with it, but they've been able to you know, cite a section of the criminal code or explain to me somehow why they want me to leave. And then my next step is to say, could you please give me an opportunity to contact my lawyer so that we can decide if we want to make representation in front of you? Basically, give me a chance to, to see if, I, if our lawyer is going to come and talk to you about this. And but that didn't that didn't case, happen yesterday, though. It, it didn't happen. So you know, so this was unusual for a couple of reasons. This judge, um, for the first time in my career, uh, provided zero explanation as to why I, I she she was asking me to leave beyond the fact that she said it's my courtroom and and uh, I get to make the rules, basically, and I want you to leave. And when I asked if I could contact my lawyer, she said no, uh, that she wasn't going to waste 
court time on that. So I wasn't given that opportunity. And then, of course, the third thing and maybe most dramatic thing that happened that has never happened before was um, she called security to come and remove me from the courtroom. Uh, And I I mean, that has never happened before. It's probably never happened to um, most court reporters in this country. Well, and that's why this is such a, a, a weird set of, of, of circumstances that are going on here. i got to ask you, though, you mentioned that as, as soon as you sat down in the courtroom that one of the lawyers came in and, and, and addressed you. Were, were they concerned? Uh, were they showing some angst that you were even there? I think they were ticked off I was there, but I don't know. We didn't, we didn't have a conversation. She, um, uh, she didn't really introduce herself. She just wanted to know who I was, okay. and uh, I don't even know for certain what her role was in the proceedings because I wasn't there much longer. All right, so you, so you're out of there. Uh, but you did talk to, to the to the spec lawyers about this and, and, and talk to us about that because I'm uh, some people are simply gonna take the judge's explanation that it's her courtroom and she can do what she wants. But uh, the, the legal opinion that I saw that indicated that's not necessarily the case. That has to be weighed against the, the right for people to know in free and open trials. Absolutely. So um, the spectator's lawyer, Brian Rogers, um, and I had uh, uh, many discussions yesterday about what was going on. And um, yes, a a judge has control over her courtroom, but they cannot just arbitrarily and with no explanation remove someone from the courtroom. That power that they have is really... Bill only to be used when um, someone is disrupting the courtroom somehow. And I was sitting there quietly minding my own business until I was addressed and asked to to leave the courtroom. So, um, you know, I can't imagine that I was disrupting the courtroom in any way um, by simply asking to, to stay in an open court. Where do you go from here? What What are the next steps on here? I, I mean, obviously you're upset about this. As I mentioned, the, the, the Twitter uh, action that I saw on this, uh, overwhelmingly supportive. Uh, and and I, I saw tweets from all over North America this morning, Susan, and, yeah, and that yeah. had to be rather heartening to see that kind of support. Uh, given the the barrage that uh, that media can sometimes be in these these last couple of years, especially, uh, so that that's there. But at the same time, I, I don't get the sense that you want to just let this go. Uh, well, I, I mean, I'm about to have a discussion actually with uh, Paul Burton, the editor in chief of the Hamilton Spectator, about and our lawyer Brian Rogers about what our next steps will be. Um, you know, there are some possibilities, uh, a judicial review being one of them, something that, frankly, I've never done before. I don't know how that process works, um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's asking for uh, um, a higher body to sort of review mm-hmm. the, the actions of the judge and see um, whether there was any wrongdoing. Um, so that's an option, but... You know, what I can say for sure is that I will continue to report on um, this case uh, from both the criminal court end and as well as I can on anything else that happens. Um, You know, I'm continuing to um, try to get a copy of that sealing order. Um, I will, I now know when the next court date is for family court, so uh, I'd like to be there for that. 
Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, but, you know, it, it, this isn't going to prevent me from um, covering this case. Well, and, and in the absence of any explanation as to why you should have left in the first place, why wouldn't you show up the next time? I mean, you know, you're well within your rights to do that. I mean, as, as a private citizen and as a journalist, you're allowed to do that. And and I, I would think that there has to be onus on the, on the judge in this particular case to explain uh, her actions in a situation like this. And clearly that's not forthcoming at this stage. But, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of loose ends here. But at the same time, you've got to do your job, and I think people understand that. This is not the first time you've wandered into a courtroom in Hamilton, Susan. People know who you are. They know why you're there, and your job is to report what's going on. And, uh, you know, for them to suggest, well, we don't want anybody from the media in here, that's, that's, it's, well, it's suspicious, frankly, and and, and I think it casts some some aspersions on on the whole system. It it really does, and it's, you know, it's interesting, too, um, the irony of, of, you know, being kicked out of family court with security and, and the whole works. And then within half an hour, I was back at the John Sapinka courthouse sitting in on the criminal part of this case in that trial with no problems whatsoever. Um, you know, they're free to do my job, free to listen, free to report, um, free to you know, watch justice unfold as it should be. So here we have, you know, literally within uh, a block or two of each other, two different courtrooms um, treating the public and the media in extremely different ways. Much more to come on this story, to be sure, over the next couple of days. Susan, thanks so much for the time. Always a pleasure. I appreciate you having me, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Susan Claremont, of course, award-winning columnist with Hamilton Spectator with a rather bizarre day in court yesterday. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, we have had a number of discussions uh, on the program about uh, safe injection sites. And uh, as you know, we've had some problems here in Hamilton trying to find a permanent site uh, for that program. Uh, there's a great body of evidence that we're going to describe in more detail in just a couple of minutes about the, the role that safe injection sites play in the opioid crisis. And it's a problem, obviously. It's a growing problem, not just here in Ontario, but as we've told you in the past, uh, the numbers here in Hamilton uh, are significantly higher than the provincial average. So we've got to do something about this. But it's not just a Hamilton problem. It's happening in other communities. Well, Ontario nurses are now expressing concern over why the Ontario government feels that they need to assess the merit of supervised injection sites and overdose prevention services. Uh, they think there is plenty of evidence, and we'll talk about that with our, our next guest. Uh, Lynn Ann Mulroney is an RN and uh, nursing policy analyst with the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and joining us on the Bill Kelly Show. Lynn Ann, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Oh, thanks very much for the invitation, Bill. Well, it's got to be frustrating, I think, for your organization uh, to, to be going through this process right now. I mean, th- this is something that has been discussed. It has been studied. Uh, there is a body of evidence to prove that there is a, a, an a efficacy to what's going on here, yet the, the new provincial government basically says, well, we're not so sure. Absolutely, Bill. It's disappointing and, and even heartbreaking because there is that huge body of evidence and lives are literally in the balance. So, you know, we we aren't doing this with other um, public health or or biomedical things. We're not, every time there's a new government, we're not stopping to examine the evidence. So I think given the strong body of evidence, we should just be carrying on. 
Well, and, and there's an argument to be made for that, but let me maybe start with throwing some numbers out here. Uh, because as I say, there, there has been a, a number of studies that have been done about this. Uh, we know the problem, obviously. There's an opioid crisis right now. There were, what, over 1,200 deaths across the province uh, attributed opioid poisoning uh, in the last year alone, and, and that's an, a significant increase from the year before. That's right. It's a 45% increase from uh, the year before. So, so it's, it's an, a problem that's not getting any better. Absolutely. It's, anytime you look at the, um, the graphs that kind of show it, it's always going in the wrong direction. And as you were saying in your introduction, Hamilton um, the, has, increased, has gone up by 65% compared to the numbers in 2016. There are 87 deaths. In Hamilton, and I'm sure you're aware of the circumstance here in Hamilton with the uh, looking for a safe injection site. Uh, they're having a great deal of problems here, uh, trying to find a site, uh, a, a landlord, somebody that will will accommodate them. Uh, they even reached out to the, to the two major hospitals here, to St. Joe's and Hamilton Hill Sciences, and they basically said, "No, we don't really have room for it." So it's uh, I, I know there's a temporary home for this right now, but it's a project really without any foundation, and that's got to be a problem. I'm sad because it also gives a bad message. I think every Ontarian, every person who lives in Hamilton, where everybody's life is so valuable that we need to be, you know, remembering that these could be any person in our family that is in need of these health services. Well, and yeah, we need to put a face on this. And I mean, that's maybe the best way to try to gain an understanding as to what's going on. Uh, that uh, I don't know what kind of uh, you know face people draw up or conjure up in their minds when they start hearing about opioid crisis, but you know when you look at some of the numbers and you look at some of the case studies in this situation, Leanne, uh, these are professional people. Uh, these are, are people that uh, get for one reason or another have become hooked on on opioids, and uh, uh, and well, it, it spirals downhill at such a quick rate. But I mean. <laughs> They're lives and they're human beings, and I mean, obviously, we need to do what we can to try to to, to help them into this. But I, there's there's stigma attached to this whole program, isn't there? I mean, there are still some people that, and I'm sure you've heard this argument in the past that look at we got we you know all this is going to do is encourage more drug use, and that's only going to make the problem worse. So I think, as you were saying, it can happen to people at any walk of life. I mean, so, certainly, you know, sometimes you hear of uh, well-known people or celebrities that you would think it might not happen to, but it, it does. It happens to people, you know, at the top middle and people who are struggling financially as well. And the thing is that people um, who sometimes, I think if people actually knew the stories of people who are struggling with this, sometimes people get into um, this difficulty because they've had many, many other traumas that have happened in their life. So it's kind of, you know, sometimes they've started with great difficulties in childhood and then gone on to have many, many other terrible things that have happened to them. So they're just trying to ease their pain sometimes. Well, and ease the pain, I think, is a critical element to this whole thing because there are some people that are, are dealing with chronic pain and, and, and as a result, of course, have, have tried to use opioids to try to deal with that and to try to gain some sense of comfort. And, and, and obviously the, an addiction can, can result from overuse of, of those sorts of situations. Uh, and all of a sudden they, they find themselves in this spiral going out of control. Uh, there's, a, there's a real problem here, and, and I want you to ask or talk to us right now, if you could, Lynette, about, about, about the program, both the safe injection sites at all, and what happens. And maybe if you could walk us through the process of somebody who walks through the door there, maybe we get a, a more clear understanding as to exactly how efficient and how important these are to, the, to this whole bigger problem. 
Absolutely, Bill. So um, people who would uh, attend one of the overdose prevention sites or supervised uh, injection services sites, you know, they would be coming in with drugs that they had already um, obtained from someplace. Um, They would be in an environment that would have often nurses, um, peer workers, other people who are well-versed with what's going on. They would be in a safe, clean environment where they would have access to clean needles. Um, They would have people who were um, monitoring them so that if the poisonous um, opioid that they happen to be taking, because a lot of times the drug supply now really is filled with all kinds of other harmful things, they would be able to resuscitate them so that they wouldn't die right there from the overdose. And then it also has a lot of other benefits in terms of preventing people from getting infection. Um, it prevents people, it, it, it helps people stay alive long enough so that they can maybe access the help that they might be looking for at another time, such as rehab. And, and that's, that's an option that, that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. I mean, for those who still have this idea that it's just a place where these guys can, can shoot up and, and do what they want and then go off on their way, uh, there's counseling available. There are people that you can talk to about this. I mean, I, I, I don't know that you run into too many people at all, Lynn, that say, hey, I'm, I'm happy with this lifestyle. I, the, a lot of them are trying to find a way out of it, but at the same time dealing with a physical addiction. Absolutely. And, you know, it, as you were saying earlier, Bill, the, the the great stigma. I mean, if people had a heart condition or diabetes, we wouldn't be looking at them with the same kind of judgment and asking whether they deserve access to health services or not. Uh, you, you mentioned about the street aspect of this, too. And, and you know, the, the, some of these are prescription drugs. We get that. And that may be where the problem starts because of, 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 of you know, prescription drugs and, and the use of those for pain management or any number of other things, whether it's recovering from surgery or any number of other uh, you know, autoimmune diseases. There are so many different issues here in different people's lives. But the the reality here is if all of a sudden that supply is gone uh, from legitimate medical services, they start looking for it on the street because their body still craves this. They still need this. They still need the pain management and something to deal with this. And if you're buying it from some guy in a back alley downtown, you have no idea what they're actually selling you. Absolutely. There's no quality control or any way of knowing what exactly it is that that is being introduced into your body. It's literally often a kind of poisoning. So so there's that element of it. So, and uh, there are some studies. I want to talk about the London situation. I, I, obviously, we can focus on Hamilton because that's uh, something that's much more clear to us here in our own community. But I know that the, there's a... a uh, the sand is running out of the hourglass in the London, Ontario situation. Now, that's, that clinic has been in place for some time, uh, and, and with some success. I mean, my understanding is that is because of the controlled sites, uh, the number of fatalities was reduced considerably because of, of that aspect of the treatment that was available. Um, absolutely, and that's, it's, it's such a, a concern for us that, um, that there, the time is running out um, by August 15th is, is when the sand goes out of that hourglass. You know, so uh, that's, London, that's next week. Yeah, yeah. So, and London you know, was the first sanctioned um, overdose prevention site, and they've been able, you know, they haven't had any deaths um, in or around their, their site, and they've been able to, um, they've supervised more than 4,700 injections. Um, you know, so it's, in the, you know, as you were saying before, no, like in a better world, nobody 
would be in this situation. But in the meantime, we're in an emergency, and so we have to actually respond appropriately. Well, and, and there's a body of, of, of evidence out here. We get that. But, and, and, and you've stepped up, to your uh, credit, the Ontario Nurses Association have stepped up, but you're not the only voices that are doing this. Uh, you know, uh, the uh, Medical Officer of Health for Toronto, the former Medical Officer, Dr. McEwen, uh, uh, has been a strong advocate for this. Other healthcare workers have been an advocate for this. You'd, you'd like to think that when governments are trying to decide on policy that they're going to talk to the people on the front lines that are actually delivering that policy. Yeah, there's people um, who have been doing research on this for years and years, and it's it's not like a flash in the pan. I mean, even if you look back at um, the experience in Vancouver, that's been going on um, for 15 years, and they have um, they've had 3.6 million visits over 15 years at the Insight facility there. They've reversed more than 6,400 overdoses, and no one has ever died at the facility. So it does work. I mean, that, that's that's it, really the message you want to get across here. This does work. Absolutely. But but it it's works. people are going to have to, especially in the ministry right now, they're going to have to educate themselves. And I think most of the people in the ministry probably are already aware of that anyway. Uh, yeah, if they're not, you know, I'm, I I I know that that people who are well versed in there, the the researchers, the people who are working on the front lines, you know, they would be more than happy to. Uh, spend time with them and, and help them understand, but it's, it's, it's not controversial in terms of the scientific peer review literature is really clear that this works, not only in Canada, but in Europe and Australia. But the, I guess the question that, that uh, it certainly comes to my mind, and I'm sure it has with your organization too, Lenan, is, is why are they putting a pause on this? I mean, what do they need to find out that they don't already know? Um, I Honestly, I really don't understand um, what's going on, except for, again, it makes me really um, sad in, in terms of, I think this helps to increase the stigma and the discrimination that we were talking about before. Well, it seems as if they're playing to it. Yeah. That, yeah. It, it, well, we don't want these druggies in our neighborhood. You know, this is one of these, you know, NIMBY things. You know, we don't want this sort of thing going on. The fact of the matter is it's going on in those communities in the back alleys and behind closed doors now. And this is actually trying to bring people to a common site where they can get proper help for these sorts of things. You'd, you'd think that they would be embracing a program like this. Yeah, it, it's from the health point of view, it's cost effective. It, it it has not been shown to increase crime or anything like that, and it also uh, helps with, you know, if there's needles or things like that in the in the neighborhood. So, I mean, there's from an evidence point of view, there's just no reason why the site should not be continuing and expanding as needed. Well, you know, because we've heard the stories, and and I'm sure you have in in different communities around the country. Uh, and, and even here in Hamilton, we've heard about this, about, you know, syringes found in parks at night and, and in alleys. And, and sadly, some people that are, are already overdosed and, and, you know, some die. Many of them die. We talked about those numbers already, uh, you know, with 1,200 deaths, over 1,200 deaths last year alone uh, because of overdoses that are going on right now. This is, this is basically moving them out of the alleys and trying to give them the medical assistance that they need. And, and of course, as you've talked about, and this is a very important part of this equation, the counseling that they need and the supervision that they need to try to get themselves healed and get them out of this stuff. Absolutely. Um, and, and access to, to rehab and, and also even things like um, help with wounds and infections that, that they might have. I mean, I think 
the people that are working there, there's many, many different ways that they can be of assistance um, to people, including building relationships and, and um, helping to treat people like human beings. I think that's important, too. Where are you with the government on this right now? I mean, they, they've announced already that they're, they're not sure about this and they're, they're not going to commit to it at this stage. But like you say, the London Clinic, the funding runs out next week. Uh, Hamilton's having problems like this. And, and maybe one of the reasons for these problems and, and the difficulty in trying to find locations is that, uh, is that you know the people that they're asking to come to their assistance right now are looking at Queen's Park and saying, well, look, if they don't believe in it, why should we? Um, I, I think it's safe to say that the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario is really going to keep um, doing everything in our power to try and urge the government to move, to move on this issue. Um, it, it just, it's nurses are working at the sites. They're, it's just, um, we, we're, we're not only healthcare workers, but we're also family members and neighbors. Like it's in our interest in every way possible to be saving lives and using the public health evidence to address this critical public health emergency. Well, I certainly hope that uh, the folks at Queen's Park and the Ontario Ministry of Health uh, get that message and it starts to resonate with them. Lynn Ann, continued good luck with what you guys are trying to do, and uh, we'll stay in touch as this develops. Thanks for this today. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. Bye now. Lynn M. Mulroney, uh, registered nurse and, of course, a policy assistant uh, with the uh, Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Uh, it's it's sad. It's really problematic and and tragic that uh, that people are dying because the government, uh, which already has a program that's effective right in front of them, and is, is thinking, well, we're not so sure anymore. Really? Come on, people, think about this, uh, and don't play up to stigmas. You'd like to think that the people within the ministry would know better. You'd like to think that anyway. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML.